Welcome to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in. We pray that the following message will help you connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and others. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. We'll begin reading with verse 17 of Isaiah chapter 65. You ever been in a conversation with people, uh, with a group of people, and they're, and they're talking about what God is up to in their lives, what God is doing in their lives? You ever been in a conversation like that? And different people are talking, and you're just, wow, God's doing some great things in their life. And have you ever been in a conversation like that, and, and in your mind... I mean, you're not going to say this, but in your mind, you're thinking, God, why aren't you doing stuff like that in my life? It seems like you're doing some, I mean, like miracle stuff in that person's life or that family's life. But what about, I mean, I, not, not, not that I don't see you doing some things, but I, stuff like that. Well, the people uh, Isaiah was writing to in, in Isaiah chapter 65 felt the same way. And so the title of this message is, What God is Up To These Days. And I want you to know he's up to some stuff. And he's up to some stuff for you. And it's great news. Isaiah chapter 65, beginning with verse 17. Isaiah here is quoting God speaking to the people. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. And they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. The book of Isaiah is the, uh, I call it the majestic masterpiece of the Old Testament. If the Old Testament were a wedding ring, the book of Isaiah is the solitaire diamond 
at the focal point of that wedding ring. It is a masterpiece. It is a work of art. Better than any other book, perhaps in all the Bible, Isaiah describes God in all his glory. No other book describes God so majestically and so otherworldly than Isaiah. He shows him as a holy God. He shows him as a sovereign in control God. He shows him as a God who is trustworthy. He shows him as righteous and just. But he also shows God as merciful and gracious and good and aware of every one of us and everything that is ever happening in our lives. There is no book, especially in the Old Testament, that so wonderfully brushes and describes and paints the character of God like Isaiah. Truly, Isaiah is a masterpiece of art in the Bible and certainly in the Old Testament. But have you ever been to an art museum? Not everybody, museums are not for everybody, you know. Some folks, they love museums. They'd love to just put up a tent in a museum. Other people, they go to a museum, they look at a piece of art, and there are people all around them going, ooh, ah, oh, I see what that is. And, and you might be like me, and you're looking at that piece of art that's worth millions and thinking, what on earth is that? That looks like something my grandbaby drew. You know, and it's worth millions? What on earth? What, what's up with that? I don't, I don't get it. You know, sometimes you can look at a piece of art that is a masterpiece, painted by a master artist, and yet you not understand what it is, what it says, what it means. And, and that's the way Isaiah is too. Isaiah is a masterpiece of inspired art. He paints God more beautifully than any other book of the Bible. And yet Isaiah is sometimes so hard to read and so hard to understand. To compound the difficulty about Isaiah... You, you probably already know this, but there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Now, when the Bible was first written, there were no chapters and verse divisions. Can you imagine that? I mean, uh, we have a hard enough time. Uh, last week, I asked everybody to turn to the book of Haggai, and I said that some of you would still be looking for it at the time that I finished the sermon. In fact, I had a lady come to me this morning, and she says, you know, you told us to start looking for Haggai last week? And I said, yes, yeah. I found it this morning. So, well, that's good. <laughs> Chapters and verses weren't always there. In fact, they weren't put there until the year 1227 A.D. or C.E. A man from England decided to put the chapters and verses in there. It's really a good thing. It helps us, doesn't it? So we can find our way, you know. Um, but they weren't always there. But Isaiah, now that it has chapters and verses, has 66 chapters. And the thing that makes uh, Isaiah so complex is that if you take the first 39 chapters, if you were to look at a timeline of history that Isaiah deals with, the first 39 chapters deal with what we call the Assyrian period. Now, what's the Assyrian period? It, it goes, with regard to Israel and Judah, it goes from 722 to 612 B.C., and the first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal with that period of uh, Israel's history. 
the Assyrian period, when Assyria was the world power. But then the second section of Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, deal with what we call the Babylonian period. The Babylonian period covers the years 612 to 539 B.C., and Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 deal with that period of history in, in incredible detail. And then the final section of Isaiah, chapters 40, uh, 56 through 66, deal with the third period of history at that time, the Persian period. Now, uh, just look at the differences in those years, 722 to 622, that's the Assyrian period. At the time the Assyrians came to power, Israel was, was one nation, and they were called the kingdom of Israel. And it was that way from about 1,040 down to 922. And then in 922, the nation of Israel split in two, and you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The, the northern kingdom consisted of 10 tribes. The, northern, the southern kingdom consisted of two tribes. And it was that way from 922 to 722 for 200 years. But in 722, the Assyrians came down into the northern kingdom and obliterated it, destroyed it. And so at, by 722, there is no northern kingdom. And so from 722 down to 612, you've got only the southern kingdom of Judah. In 612, the Assyrians are defeated by the Babylonians at what, it, at what is known as the Battle of Carchemish. I know this, you didn't come in here and pay for a, your ticket did not say a history lesson. There must be a sermon in this somewhere. Are we ever going to get to it? I don't know. The Assyrians are defeated by the Babylonians 612. Six years later in 606 BC, the Babylonians swoop down into Judah they invade Jerusalem. They don't destroy it, but they take the first of three groups of captives 800 miles to the east to Babylon. It's the beginning of a 70-year captivity. They come back down 10 years later in 596, and they do the same thing. They take another group, a second group, to captivity, but they didn't destroy the city. But 10 years later, in 588 to 586, they come back to Jerusalem. They lay siege to the city for two years. And then in 586, they come in, they destroy the city, its walls, its temple, its houses, its businesses, everything, and they take the best and the brightest back to Babylon. That's 586. And Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 deal with that period of time. And then in 539, Cyrus and the Persian Empire comes in and defeats Babylon. And the the Persians decide, we're going to start letting the Jews go back home. We're going to give them the opportunity to go back home. And so here's the kicker. Most of the Jews said, nah, we like it here. You know, the stereotype, and stereotypes are not always good, but the stereotype that Jewish people are good business people, they get that not from uh, Palestine, but from what they learned in Babylon. In Babylon, although they were captives, they became great business people. They learned commerce. And so when it came time for, for people to go back home, they said, hey, man, we're doing pretty well here. We're going to stay here. And so only a minority of Jews went back home. And when they got there, they were so disappointed. As you might imagine, as you look at those three sections of Isaiah, how could one person write all that? 
Some people believe that one person, Isaiah of the 700s, lived during the first section, but that God helped, inspired him in such a way as to prophesy through the second two sections. Other people believe that Isaiah the prophet wrote the first section, but there was a school of Isaiah under Isaiah's name down through the years, and that some of his students, later students of the school of Isaiah, wrote uh, what they saw in the second section and in the third section. Whatever the authorship, the text we're looking at this morning Chapter 65 lands in that third section during the Persian period when the Jewish people, a minority of them, are back in Jerusalem and they've come back with all kinds of hopes, all kinds of dreams, all kinds of anticipation, all kinds of excitement, all kinds of expectation. But when they get to Jerusalem, all their excitement turns to gloom. Things are worse than they thought, worse than they expected. And they began to cry out to God. They knew that God's plan was for them to come, to come home to Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem. They believed that. And yet, there was something about their disappointment that led them to believe that uh, God wasn't doing anything. So I want to show you something here in, in these verses. The first thing I want to show you is what I call the error of God's people. The error of God's people. And the error was this. And, and, and here's what they're saying to God. They're saying, we've cried out to you, but you don't answer. We don't hear anything out of you. Other people hear you. Other nations seem to hear you. You're doing great things for them, but you're not doing anything for us. In order to see this, you have to back up to the previous chapter, chapter 64, verses 1 through 3, where uh, the people are speaking to God. Isaiah is quoting the people, talking to God, and here's what they say to him. Oh, that you would rend, rend means to tear open the heavens and come down. The implication is you're not doing that. That, that the mountains would tremble before you. The implication is they weren't trembling. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Come down, the implication, you're not coming down. And then look at verse 3. For when you did awesome things, what, is he saying? what are they saying? You used to do some great things. We hear that you used to do. We read about that you used to do. For when you did awesome things we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. You ever read the Bible and you say, man, God did some great things back then. I wish you'd do those things in my life. Or you hear somebody talking about how good God has been to him. You say, man, I'm glad for you. I really am. I'm kind of not. But I really am. I'm kind of not. Because I wish God was that good to me. It doesn't seem like he is. That was the error of these people of Judah. And, and it's, it's the error that sometimes you and I commit. And in response to that error, Isaiah points them to the endlessness of God's pursuit of us. The endlessness of God's pursuit of us. You see, contrary to what the people felt, God 
has a response that he's been reaching out to them all along. The opening verses of chapter 65 tell us this. this. Now, in chapter 64, beginning with verse 1, Isaiah is quoting the people talking to God. With Isaiah 65, he's quoting God speaking back to the people. And here's what God says. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, constantly said, here am I, here am I. All day long, verse 2, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, who pursue their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs. Now, you and I like barbecue pork, but in that day, they were not supposed to eat barbecue pork. They weren't supposed to eat pork. It was impure, unclean, and whose pots hold broth of impure meat who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Can you imagine anybody saying that to God? I'm too sacred for you, God. I know what you're thinking. You said, that's just crazy. I would never say that to God. You and I would never say to God, I'm too sacred for you, would we? But have you ever said this to God? God, I know what, I know what, I think I know what your will is, but I'm going to go, I'm going to do it my way. When I say to God, God, I know what your will is, but if it's all right with you, with all due respect, I'm going to go my way. You know what I'm really saying to God? I'm saying, I know better than you do. I'm too sacred for you. And God says at the end of verse 5, such people are smoking my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. But the point of that section of verses is that God has been revealing himself. He was revealing himself. He was seeking those people. They didn't even realize it. They were missing him at every turn. The endlessness of God's pursuit of us. The third thing that we see in, in this uh, chapter, this two, these two chapters, is the exclusivity of God. The exclusivity of God. Now, Normally, when we think about the exclusivity of God, that God is exclusive, we, we tend to think about salvation, that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. It is exclusively through Jesus Christ. And that is true. That is, that is what the Bible says. But while that is true, that's not what I'm talking about here. When I talk about the exclusivity of God, what I'm talking about here is God doing what only God can do. And I'll show you this. It's in verses 17 and 18, the exclusivity of God. Verse 17, this is God speaking. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Now, in those two verses, I want you to notice three things. Actually, three times that the same verb is in these two verses. Verse 17, see, I will create. Middle of verse 18, rejoice forever in what I will create. 
Last of verse 18, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. The verb create, it's the Hebrew word bara. Bara, it's a verb. Now, it being a verb, when you see it in a sentence, it requires a subject. Y'all remember subject, verb, object? Hello? Hello? Subject, verb, object. The verb is create, bara in Hebrew. In the Old Testament, when you see the word bara, translated create, it will always and only be accompanied by one single noun as a subject. And that subject is always God. In the Old Testament, the only person, in fact, in all the Bible, the only person who has ever had and ever will have and does have the ability to create something is God. You and I can't do it. Only God can do it because the verb implies the idea of creating something out of nothing. In Latin, it's ex nihilo, out of nothing. Bara, create something out of nothing. We see this same verb in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created, bara, the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Bara. Creating something out of nothing is something that only God can do. It is exclusively God's doing. Now, the reason that Isaiah brings this up to these people is they feel like they, their lives are all done, that everything is hopeless, everything is thick darkness that they cannot get out of. Some of you may feel the same way. You, may, you just may feel like you're in a funk and you cannot get out of it no matter how hard you've tried, no matter how, many, no matter how many people you've talked to. And here's what God's Word is saying to you and me when we're in that kind of funk. I... I'm in the process of doing something in you, for you, and through you that only I can do. And I'm doing it specifically for you. Isn't that amazing? That our God, the God who spoke the universe into existence, has plans for individual you and specifically for you. He's creating something that only he can do And he's doing it for you, the exclusivity of God. Fourth thing I want you to see is something I call the epidemic of hope. You see, God is in the business of providing hope to the hopeless. And so in answer to these people's disappointment and their feelings of hopelessness, God offers the people great hope. And he offers this hope especially to the least hopeful among the people who are there. We see this in uh, verses 20 through 23 of of, uh, chapter 65. God says, never again will there be in it, in your world, an infant who lives but a few days. I can envision that in Isaiah's audience, there was someone, there was some mother, there was, there was some family who had a child, had great hopes, and that child was born. And, and the tragedy of it was that child only lived a few days. Never again will that happen, Isaiah says, God says. Never again will it happen that an old man does not live out his years 
I can envision that in uh, Isaiah's congregation, in his audience, the people who are reading this, this prophecy, there, were, there was someone who had a father or a mother who expected to live to old age, to at least the average age that everybody else lives to, and yet because of some tragedy, because of some unforeseen emergency, their life was cut short way too soon. God says, never again will a man or woman not live out his or her years Instead, the one who dies at 100 will be considered a child. The one who fails to reach 100, it'll it'll be considered a curse for some reason. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. You say, well, what's so hopeful about that? Well, verse 22, no longer will they build houses and others live in them, plant and others eat. Evidently, there, was a, there were people out there who were, who were working, working from sun up to sun down every day, but everything they had worked for ended up benefiting someone else besides themselves. Verse 23 says, They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. You see, throughout these verses I just read, we have the hint of people who have run into hard times. And and it is to these people, the family whose whose, uh, newborn baby didn't live but a few days, the family whose father died in his 40s instead of his his 90s, the the, the mother who is is, uh, unable to bear children, the the parents who wonder where their rebellious child has gone to, it is to these people that God is speaking to and he offers them an epidemic of hope. Back in 2002 to 2004, our youth minister was a, a young man by the name of Jonathan Long. Any of you remember John O? Anybody here remember John O? Some of you do. I mean, I can understand if you didn't. He wasn't that much to look at. Not very pretty at all. I mean, really, John O wasn't. He was, uh, he was bald. Not that bald is bad, I'm, I'm, don't, but he was bald. And he had he had he wore he wore glasses, beady eyes, and uh, he had a beard. He wore goofy clothes. He's a youth minister today, by the way, up in Monroe, Georgia. And if you see him on Facebook, he's bald, and he's got this red, very stiff-looking beard that comes down to here. It starts out red, and then it goes white, or maybe it starts out white and it goes red. I don't know, but it's down to right here, and it's like a a stiff metal brush coming out of his face, bald beard. I mean, he's just not pretty at all. He's got a beautiful wife. His wife, Heather, is like model material. How he got her, I don't know. There's something wrong with her lenses. But Jono was an incredible youth minister. What he did during those two years, I've, uh, it's just been amazing. Just amazing. And, but in addition to being a youth minister, John O and his wife Heather run uh, a, a charitable adoption ministry, and, and here's the name they gave it, the Hope Epidemic. I thought, that's a great name. John O was always creative with names, the Hope Epidemic. Wouldn't it be great, y'all, if all of a sudden in our community, in our church, in our nation, and around the world, there arose, I mean, just all of a sudden and spread like wildfire, an epidemic of hope, a pandemic of hope. Can you imagine that? 
Boy, wouldn't that be great? Isaiah says that God is wanting exactly that for the people of Judah. And guess what? He wants exactly that for the people of PBC and America and our world. Finally, there is the envisioning of a better life. The envisioning of a better life. God's vision is making impossible dreams a reality. Verses 24 and 25, there are some things that Isaiah pictures as about to be a reality. And they, they, are, they look like impossibilities. Verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. And then come the impossibilities. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. How likely is that? The lion will eat straw like the ox instead of eating the ox. Dust will be the serpent's food instead of biting a human being. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. There's the envisioning of a better life. I guess it's uh, kind of the divine, the design of being a pastor that... uh, on most weeks, the people that I talk with outside of our staff, and maybe including our staff sometimes, I don't know, the people who come to me, they have a, a common desire. You know what that common desire is? Preacher, can you tell me how things are going to get better? They just want something better than where they are. I think that is so much the hope of so many people. Can you just tell me that things will be better? Can you just tell me there's some light at the end of the tunnel? Can you tell me, can you tell me there's some hope that this pain is going to ease, that my struggles are going to fade? And Isaiah says to these people, yes, I can. I can't give you the timetable. I can't tell you exactly how God's going to do it, but I will tell you that the wolf and lamb will feed together. I will tell you that the lion will eat straw like an ox instead of eating the ox. I will tell you that the dust will be a serpent's food instead of your ankles being his food. There will come a time when life will be better, he says. And so for the people of Judah, God promised hope. In the midst of no hope. And for you and me this morning, God promises hope even when we feel there is no hope to be found. So if if you don't hear anything else from me this morning, I want you to hear this. Are you looking up here? Our God is a God of hope and he wants to give that hope to you he's a God of hope let's pray heavenly father I know it's kind of crazy to ask you this, but do you realize how much relief you give us when you remind us of how much you love us and how much you think about us, how much you care for us? 
how hopeful you want to be on our behalf. God, thank you for the hope you give. Lord, when our lives are in rubble, when we we don't know where to begin cleaning up the storm damage, you're the God in the midst of the storm and you're the God who encourages encourages us to get up. You're the God who helps us up and you're the God who gives us hope. And there's no price we can put on that. We love you so much, God. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us like you do. Lord, I want to make sure that everybody in this room, before we leave here, every one of us knows how much you love us and how much hope you want to give us. In Jesus' name, amen.